0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com/tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com/tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? Hi, I'm Tanya Pinkins, and I'm very excited to talk with my guest today, who I discovered on Instagram. I got to tell you that Instagram and TikTok are like my schools lately. The young people are giving you education about everything, Uh, vocabulary, grammar, indigenous history, black history, African history. I am scrolling every morning for an hour or so. To learning about the world. Um, So my guest today, his name is Tony Neighbors, and he is from Racial Equity Insights. And I was really fascinated by the strategic ways that Tony talks about um, things that are, you know, getting kind of hot here in the world. And I I sent you um, him over uh, an an article today by Chris Hedges, who is a wonderful journalist, talking about um, woke politics, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about that, too. You're listening to You Can't Say That. And welcome, Tony. How are you this morning?
0: I'm doing great, Tanya. I I highly appreciate being here. Uh, I was able to take a very quick read of that article, and I, I, I know that... Whatever we get into is going to be a, a very good conversation. Now,
1: you are in Tanzania right now, is that right?
0: Yes, that is correct.
1: What brought you to Tanzania?
0: Yeah, so my my, my family and I, my wife and I, we had been talking about at least visiting the motherland for a good while, um, and we had some friends that lived, were originally from the Seattle area in Washington state. Uh, we had some friends that are from Tanzania that lived in Seattle years and years and years ago. So we did a little research, decided to visit Tanzania last year, Uh, really enjoyed it and said, hey, let's go on an adventure. Let's see what a longer term stay there could feel like. Uh, Let's get that experience of being outside of the U.S., having our four Black sons be able to be in a place where everybody looks like them. Uh, Just be able to get that sense of what it's like to be among the people and be among, you know, just uh living life without having to experience the the challenges that come with being black in the states and just being able to have mm. that freedom experience
1: how old are your kids
0: they are 11 eight uh about to be six this weekend and three and a half oh so how's it been it has been it's been good it has been challenging it has been uh game changing it's been a little different ways uh it's definitely challenging just getting used to the new culture. Uh, Swahili is the primary language here, and we're still trying to learn it. You know, we've learned, you know, learned a little bit along the way, but still a lot to learn on that front. Um, for me, it's getting used to the weather a little bit because it's, it's hot all the time, but it's beautiful and sunny and beach. Um, like today, we just for the heck of it decided, hey, let's take a little family walk to the beach, which you live in Washington State near Seattle. That's never Uh, a guaranteed experience at all, (laughs) let alone the Indian Ocean. And so, yeah, we're starting to settle in. We're having a good time and uh, definitely looking forward to continuing to experience life here.
1: So uh, I just came back from traveling um, on the continent in a couple of countries in West and Central Africa. Um, I was in Ghana, Accra, uh, Cape Coast. I was in Benin, all over Benin, north to south. I was in Gabon where my uh, African ancestry maternal line was traced and I was in Sao Tome. And uh, I had awesome. been to, Su- thank you. I was in Sudan and Egypt earlier in the year. I'd been to Egypt before. I've been to Morocco and this trip for me was life changing. And I, I'm going to share why. And then I'd love your response to this from your perspective. I was going because I'm doing a rewrite of a a script that's about um, some uh, kidnapped Africans and their life here. And so I wanted to really get a sense of what the culture was because just because I'm black doesn't mean I know anything about Africa. And so I wanted to go and absorb some of the culture that exists now because I know that some of it goes back a long way. And I think the biggest, uh, light bulb for me was that I began to see, as Jane Elliott says, that anyone who's gone through the American education system is a white supremacist because the education system in America teaches you that white is right and white is best. And Mm. what I began to see is my eyes were looking at these things that were very natural, normal, healthy in West and Central Africa that there, I was coming with a preconceived judgment because of my education in the West. And the biggest example of that for me is that um, the soil in Central and West Africa is this rich, rich red. And that soil is the sidewalks and it's the inside of shops. And everybody's walking around in it, either in flip flops or they're in uh, barefoot sometimes. and. The sky is filled with it, and it makes the the sunsets incredibly intense. And I thought, oh, these people are in the soil, and they are they're grounded. Why I've been educated that that's dirty, that there's something Mm -hmm. wrong with it, that you have to cover that up with concrete. But they are connected to they're grounded. Have you had any Uh, um, sort of revelations like that?
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's it's so interesting. Um, When I kind of think about just the The kind of interplay between people, the people that we we get to interact with and meet and build relationship with now, uh, but then also being aware of the history of colonialism um, and capitalism and industrialization, you know, kind of all that sort of stuff, infrastructure type stuff. It's so interesting. Um, I feel like it's given me such a better perspective of the U.S., um, mm-hmm. because I think that I could realize a lot of ways that there's so much more conveniences in the U S there's so much more physical infrastructure, but I kind of, this is like low key, my sort of, uh, uh, a little bit of sort of a conspiracy theory thought pattern. Um, that's probably a little bit more than that, <laughs> but I feel like a lot of the conveniences of the U S are kind of created to keep us sleep or to keep us tired or to keep us disconnected. Um, and uh, food. So food is a really good example. Um, where in the states, if you want to eat quality, fresh, organic food, that costs so much money compared to you know the packaged, processed stuff that's really terrible for your body, which is really cheap. Um, and here in Tanzania, it's the exact opposite. Like you can go, you can almost open your door from any home and toss a rock, and you'll hit a fresh, a fresh vegetable or fresh fruit market. Uh, and the prices are great. Like, the prices are, are, are affordable for local people with the local economy. Uh, whereas if you want to go and get sort of the prepackaged fast food type stuff, that's like kind of like a, a special delicacy treat that's really expensive here. Uh, and I just love the alignment with just again, just the earth, the alignment with the earth, the alignment with animals. Uh, the sort of just kind of natural spaces. It's, it's definitely the same thing over here where there's a lot more uh, dirt roads, a lot more, I mean, they, they have paved roads as well too, but certainly a lot more dirt, a lot more just sort of animals that you'll just see around. Um, and if y'all want to go to a market and if I want to order, you know, beef or chicken or something like that, uh, almost every single time that animal was alive that morning or maybe just last night. Uh, and it's so, fresh. Um, and I just, I yes. love, I love that. Connection, you know, and I love that ability to get fresh vegetables and fresh food, and you know, all that kind of different thing. Uh, where it's just easier, it's easier and more affordable, and you're. Uh, it's much easier to connect with the actual local people relationally when you are going to the local market, uh, as opposed to you know going to the box grocery store and you know buying your boxed pre-made stuff, uh, which we shouldn't be in anyway. <laughs> you know, we shouldn't be eating that anyway. So I really like that. That is less accessible here, um, and certainly is a lot better for the health. A lot better for the, the connection. Um, and I, I'm definitely a big fan of the importance of grounding and being in nature. Um, you'll see a lot of stuff on my social media is me out in nature talking about stuff. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely dig it. And I really appreciate how easy it is to be able to get outdoors over here.
1: I, food is that would have been my next issue. I have a very sensitive stomach and the whole digestive tract and just changing even sometimes from a state. Everything will get messed up for me. So I travel with my my Lomotil, my, you know, uh, Pepto-Bismol because I'm expecting that the change in uh, everything is going to affect me. I did not have any issues in Africa. Not once did I need any medication. Um, learning that there that the, the cheapest food to eat there is fresh fish because they can just go to the sea and catch it. And you go to a restaurant and you're sitting for an hour because they got to catch it and scale it and clean it. We would we would call restaurants in advance to um, let them know when we were coming so they could prepare for us. And so I was eating fresh food, fresh fish and vegetables every day. You don't have a lot of chicken because it's too expensive to feed the chicken. Um, I don't eat. Pork, but pigs were running around all the time, and you think about people running around with their pigs and their chickens and their goats. That means the biome is being shared. Less risk of people getting diseases from animal to people because they're sharing a biome because they're living together. Um, yeah, it was easier to be to eat healthily there. And here, I eat a lot of candy chips because uh, I have cravings for them. And I didn't have any of that for five weeks. Didn't crave it. Uh, pretty much as soon as I got back here and ate one meal, the cravings came up again.
0: <laughs> definitely can resonate with that. Um, I think you, you it sounds like you are a lot better than me in Africa. I definitely have not been able to fully shake the sugar cravings. <laughs> so I'm still, you know, I still still—you have kind of a sweet tooth. Um, or I, I think I've realized that if I'm really busy or stressed out or whatever the cases are, I really like crunchy stuff like chips. Like that's just kind of my jam. Um, but even if I want to get well, you got the bread food trips. What
1: what about the bread fruit chips or the pat- the, um, the banana plantain
0: chips? Have you tried those that the ladies you, make and sell on the side of the road? That's exactly what I was going to say. So the kind of the two that are my jam uh, is the, the the plantain chips. My, my wife is a bigger fan of the plantain chips, but they do the cassava chips here. Um, and oh, so I love those so good. And literally, yeah, you buy it from somebody on the side of the road. They somehow got the, they got the little packaging and whatever, and they are really good and much, much better than, you know, Lay's or Cheetos or whatever. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Um, so, you know, you've been working 20 years with anti-racism training and consulting and and strategy development, and public speaking, and team leadership, and program management. Um, it, your bio says that you're the first person to hold a position of di- diversity, equity, and inclusion for a public housing authority in U.S. history. So those words, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, they have become uh, slurs now in uh, for a certain population of the U.S., but um, what is your, your your feeling about that? And, and what does it really mean? Um, that article from Chris Hedges that I shared with you really talked about the performativeness of so much in our society right now. And I want to hear your thoughts about what you do versus the attacks on what you do. For sure.
0: For sure. So... Uh, it's so interesting. So, with me, uh, and you probably picked this up from hearing me speak on videos and that kind of thing. But I am really particular with words and with language. I love putting together the correct words or the right words, the best words to convey whatever it is I'm trying to convey. Um. So there's this there's this thing with some of the language, and I'll I'll start there, and then just you know help me if if I'm missing parts of what your question is. But um, there's this kind of perpetual thing that happens. Um, where oftentimes black people will create or you know, sort of start particular language that has to do with pursuit of equity and liberation. Uh, and then it gets co-opted by the masses, uh, most often the white masses, and uh, is then misused um, or is actually then used actually or weaponized against our freedom movements uh, and then we end up sort of shying away from the language that we created because then suddenly it goes mainstream and then it loses the meaning that we originally uh, intended for it. Uh, like how the word woke is now this uh, political sort of boogeyman for the right, uh, having to do, you know, with anything that we're trying to do so the world is more fair and more just, Um But then suddenly now it's this woke boogeyman where they're trying to attack, you know, white people, you know, whatever that sort of, you know, all that sort of uh, uh, conversation is around. Um, And that frustrates me. You know, it really frustrates me how our language is co-opted like that and is misused and is flipped around and all that kind of thing. And then we, you know, we have to kind of get creative again. Uh, But, you know, we have a very we're very creative people. And so we do that and we figure it out and we keep it moving. Uh, But that's something that definitely is annoying and frustrating. Um, And I think the same thing with the DEI. I will confess, I don't know who sort of started that particular phrase, diversity, equity and inclusion. But for me, I think that uh, effectiveness is really, really important. When I was at the Housing Authority, uh, one of the first things that I did uh, after maybe the first month or so of just getting to know the the team and then getting to know me uh, was I just did a few educational videos explaining what those words in my title mean. What does diversity mean? mean? Why should we be excited about diversity? What does equity mean? And why does that word used instead of equality? Those are two different concepts. What does inclusion mean? And why is that so critical to tie all this stuff together? And so uh, what I Could gathered- yeah, to I'll, us I'll now? Yeah, yeah. I'll talk about this. For sure. So diversity is uh, really having to do with a lot of different cross-sections and slices of humanity being represented in an organization or a space or whatever the case is. And so uh, ideally that is happening uh, racially with gender representation, with sexuality, uh, with you know religious expression, with ability, with ages and you know the list kind of goes on and on and on and on. Um, and a lot of a lot of organizations they kind of conceptualize as you know diversity is really good for PR. You know, diversity is you know, we need to be careful so we don't get sued for saying something we shouldn't say, um, which, you know, I guess those things are both true. Uh, but there's a lot of study that shows that organizations function better when they are diverse and inclusively led. Uh, they the customers trust them more. There's uh, longer retention. Uh, there's better customer and uh, staff happiness. Uh, they come up with more innovative solutions and they do so more quickly. There's been a, you know, a lot of study around the benefits of that. Um, So, you know, hopefully, at least from an organizational standpoint or any sort of problem-solving standpoint, people would desire for that because diverse groups are more likely to uh, challenge assumptions instead of just sort of everybody flowing in the same thought pattern that might not be the best or the most effective thought pattern. And so uh, it's important to recognize that that's what diversity is. Um, However, diversity, diversity is nothing if it is not inclusive and equitable. Um, if it's just diversity, we've just got, you know, we've got my black person, I've got my, you know, my, my queer person, I've got, you know, whatever, which I've actually heard organizations communicate in that way. Uh, that is just tokenization. You know, that, that's literally just sort of window dressing so your group looks good. Um, but those people have no say or no impact on the actual organization. And so when we talk about uh, inclusion, that is what does it look like for this diversity of people to actually have impacts and be at the decision making tape and be involved in leadership, and actually have power and control over the direction of the organization. And that was something that was such a game changer about my, my time at the Housing Authority. Uh, it's because literally just the executive director was over me. Um, and this man was uh, South, South African. Um, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with some of the like the South African kind of racial categories. So he would be considered colored and South African. Uh, and he is at the age where he has a lived experience of apartheid Africa and a very strong passion for racial equity and racial justice in the swimming Um, And then I'm, you know, director level with the entire senior leadership team. And then we've got all the staff that kind of go, you know, go below us. Um, so I'm able to speak authoritatively and I'm able to mentor and guide and even correct directors and their staff in their departments. Um, and then we eventually get to a space where we're holding accountability and, you know, yada, yada, yada. Uh, which was really exciting because that's unique and I think unusual for DEI staff and organizations. Uh, I'm looking for people to say something. Now, what, are we, what are we going to say there,
1: Tanya? Yeah, I, what I wanted to say is that, um, you know, you said your company's going to be better if you have these diverse perspectives and point of view and lived per- lived experience. And I often think that settler colonial capitalism isn't looking for better. Um, I read something and I don't know that it's accurate because. I don't trust anything I read on the Internet, but it said (laughs) that when Rockefeller was giving um, money to start the original sort of public education program, he said, I don't want a nation of thinkers. I want a nation of workers. And so I feel like the the slur to DEI is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, no, no. We like people say the the system's not broken. It's fixed. We like the way it works. (laughs) (laughs) it works so that the contracts go to us, the wealth goes to us. It's not broken. We're not trying to fix. We're not trying to uh, change this or make it better. We like it how it is.
0: That's absolute. That's absolute facts. I I remember uh, I learned recently uh, exactly along those lines. I am blanking on the guy's name, but like the historical figure who's known as like the, you know, the father of the American education system, whose name is escaping me right now. Um, But that he apparently got his model for the U.S. education system from, I don't know if it was Germany or some European country. Is it Russia? Russia. Uh Prussia. Prussia. Thank you. Thank you. you. Prussia. I got you. I got you. Um, But basically, the whole purpose, the whole purpose was seeing how effective that education system was to uh, essentially raising a docile populace. Uh, you know, that they, they know how to take commands, they know how to, you know, receive information and then put out an expected output um, and absolutely not intended to cause you to challenge systems or to think more deeply or to question things in society. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people will go through that education system and then basically they're kind of set in that thought pattern for life. Um, and, you know, just y'all thought you so uh, so eloquently talked about. Uh, This is how the education system is absolutely rooted in white supremacy. And so if that white supremacy is washed over us along with a game plan where we're not asking questions, we're not pushing back, we're not trying to, you know, challenge those sorts of different things, that is a recipe for, you know, not even having to sort of oppress the people when they're adults because that work was already done when they were children. So, yeah, I absolutely right. agree with that.
1: So, that makes me feel like you are really um, pushing, you know, uh, uh, who was it that had to push the world up a hill? Who was it? Sisyphus or something? Like, Atlas. was it Atlas? Atlas? Okay. Yes. Um, that the, um, you know, we've all been washed over in this idea that whiteness is the best. And that's only a little over 200 years old. It didn't exist in the 17th century, really, as much as it does today. But it became codified in books and in science and in medicine. Um, uh, so if you've got people who've been taught from the very beginning, they've been fed it from the breast. White is best. And even if they don't have anything, even if they're at the bottom of whiteness, white being best is giving them an identity and a purpose in the world that makes them above the majority of people on the planet. Why, how would they ever be interested in, um, Recognizing what I believe is that settler colonial capitalism with white supremacy has actually diminished what is available to everyone in the world. And so inside that that global system, we all have less because to me, this universe is the only um, perpetual motion machine. It makes Enough for everyone of everything, but settler colonial capitalism says, "Oh no, no, no! We don't want enough. We want less. We want scarcity because we can sell scarcity." What's
0: your thoughts? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's absolutely true, um, and it's just so interesting to you know sort of see whatever these groups of people are that get really pumped up and excited and enthusiastic for billionaires and just sort of, oh gosh, I want to be like that person, and just sort of these these sort of fiction. About, you know, the fact that this idea that billionaires just work really hard and they're so smart and then suddenly they're, they're billionaires um, with no acknowledgments of just the really evil, awful, exploitative stuff that is required to become a billionaire. Um, but those are the things, those are the people that are sort of uplifted. Um, and we saw we saw this happen a lot with uh, uh, not, not well, I guess, just kind of in the last couple of election cycles uh, and then just sort of the, the Trump worship where there's this this idea that someone who was known for money, which that the reality that is, anyway, we've been talking, that's a different conversation, but he's known for, you know, for money and, you know, for a quote unquote business and for blah, blah, blah. Um, And then there's a sort of, there's this, there's this, there's this thought pattern among people that money and capital equals moral value and moral superiority. Um, So there's this sort of a, this, this in bed relationship with these things that people really have a hard time separating. Uh, and there's a quote. I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't think I have the full quote in my mind. Uh, but a Lyndon B. Johnson quote when he was observing this exact same thing. Uh, you know, LBJ is a very polarizing figure for very good reasons. But, you know, he says this quote about um, uh, what is it that if you can if you can if you can convince the lowest white man that he's better than a black person, uh, you know, basically, you've got him. you've got, them, you've got them one. Um, You know, something like hell. He'll empty his pockets um, for you. Yes.
1: Yes. That He will empty his pockets for you. So this is a very effective system. So how do we shift that? I mean, I think that that's what your work is. How do you shift that?
0: Absolutely. So um, one of the so something that's pretty present throughout my work is a connection to human psychology. Um, Whether it be just how I present things or if I'm doing formal presentations, we're going to we're going to talk a little bit about human psychology and just the ways that we absorb ideas and Mm -hmm. how difficult it is to change minds because of the ways that our human brains lock into ideas and perspectives, especially if they help us to understand how the world works. Um, It's really hard to unravel those sorts of things that happen with people. And so what I do, at least, is I am extremely strategic with who my audience is and who I invest and who I pour my time into. So for me, I I have I have experienced and seen too often that it is ineffectual um, and honestly a waste of my time to spend a lot of energy trying to convince people that, you know, these global, horrible, oppressive systems are horrible, oppressive. Uh, for me, basically, I, I look to create spaces for people who have had at least the beginning sort of surges of epiphany or awareness or question mark um, and are looking to dive deeper and are looking to figure out, oh, gosh, I think there's something awry here. I've seen enough to realize that something is quite not something is not quite right, uh, but I need I, I'd love more information to be able to learn what that stuff is and then to be able to actually get involved with making real effective change and transformation. Um, I think there is certainly uh, uh, there are a lot of lanes when it comes to anti-racism and anti-oppression work. Uh, And I, I, you know, it's impossible for me to occupy all parts of those lanes. So I kind of find my lane that I've been effective in and then I I ride on that lane Uh, and then certainly find ways to partner with folks that can really do some of that mind changing work for people who need their minds changed. Uh, But that, I think, is actually a really powerful place for accomplice work or ally work. Um, and again, we're, we're talking about my, my focus for the work that I do is racial equity and anti-racism. Um, but again, this we have to be intersectional, We have to be aware of all of these different areas of oppression. And I find that when there are people who occupy an identity of privilege on any of these axes. So, again, race, gender, sexuality, ability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera um, they are often very unlikely to believe or listen to marginalized people across that particular identity category. And so when accomplices and allies decide that, hey, I've seen enough that to realize that this is not cool, this is unjust, this is unfair, this is evil, I'm going to speak up, I'm going to elevate, I'm going to you know, utilize the fact that certain folks will listen to me differently to be able to elevate these voices. Uh, you know, I think that's some of the way that what I do can then lead to some of that other you know, mind-changing work that is important and valuable, uh, but again, it's not necessarily for me and not where i decided to sort of sort of locate and put, put myself into. And so uh, when we realized that all these things really are connected together, uh, but <laughs> then realized ways that we all can be complicit in these various systems uh, and then are willing to put on that sense of humility of realizing that, hey, I can see this thing really clearly, but I might miss some of these other things. So let me build community. Let me open up and listen deeply. Let me grow in my emotional maturity to be okay with sometimes getting my feelings hurt by other folks with the different stories. Uh, you know, I think those are some of those kind of small grassroots sort of relationship education, learning things that can grow into something much larger and much mightier, uh, which is another reason too, why the primary, my primary clients, so to speak, um, are organizations, our businesses, our nonprofits, our governments as well, uh, because people that are in those spaces tend to be able to have larger scale impacts on communities and industries and so on and so forth. and so uh, that's that's where I've decided to sort of locate myself primarily while also finding spaces to still serve individual folks along the way through you know social media and courses and webinars and that kind.
1: But I also hear you saying that the people who are in power and fixated in having that power uh, really can only hear from people who are like them in some way. Like they can't even hear from someone who's not similarly situated. And so that gets to this Chris Hedges article, which talks about how the system itself wants to bring in people who look diverse. And so it looks inclusive and it looks equitable, but they're really bringing in represent, represent, it's representational. Like you look like these other people, but you actually aren't representing these other people yeah definitely except definitely. in you know the way you look
0: yeah absolutely and then something that um that's really big scale work to slice through that um, because our society i say especially u.s society is such a like a, a team sports mentality but across everything um, where you know like with team sports like if i'm from xyz city usually that's going to be my team I don't care where the other teams are from. I'm booing them. I'm against them. I don't care if they have great players or great people or whatever. You know, I've got my team and I'm sticking to it. I'm cheering them on. Uh, And a lot of people, that's how they lock into all sorts of things about society. And, uh, you know, the words, shoot, I didn't know or I'm wrong or, you know, those sorts of things are like uh, like profanities for a lot of different people that are out there. Um, So at least for those of us that are kind of not in those more sort of elite power positions, um, that's that's, I think, a big piece of the the slice through work is just normalizing the idea that there are stuff that we don't know and things that we can always learn. And then also normalizing the idea that people in power desire to stay in power. uh, And oftentimes they are not super concerned about those of us in the lower rungs beyond what we can do to support their power structures and their money and so on and so forth. And so I think that uh, maybe this is, maybe this is overly optimistic. Maybe this is even naive of me to a degree. Uh, But I believe that there are possibilities that when enough of the masses start to wake up and start to come online and start to, you know, like unplug from the matrix. uh, I think that when a lot of people come together and demand certain things, that's where, that progress at least starts to continue to move forward. Even if it is a long journey, even if it feels like slow and piece by piece by piece, um, I believe that's how we, we get past each obstacle and how we start to climb each rung of that journey to be able to make that transformation.
1: So for, you know, somebody who happened to tune in today, because, you know, Tanya is an actress and I like her. Oh, my God. She's talking this diversity, equity, inclusion thing. Oh, I didn't know she was one of those. What is your message
0: to them? I mean, um, it's good to define the one of those, um, because my sense is that the one of those is someone who cares about you. I'm
1: I'm in that woke politics. I'm the woke politics. I'm doing it from DeSantis's (laughs) point of view. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's just, it's, it's, oh, gosh. Right. Right. And it's to me, it's such a weird it's such a weird perspective to have, because um, I mean, the whole idea of, of woke is being aware to ways that people are treated poorly based off of things about them that they have no control over. And so how can we make a world that's more fair for everybody? So it's such a weird perspective well, to be. Some people anti don't want a that, world you know that's fair I mean? for everybody.
1: No, that's fair. Because, that's, I mean I think it that gets facts. back to the thing that uh, people don't want a world that's fair for everybody. Because if it's fair for everybody, I'm gonna have less.
0: Yeah, and to me that also uh, that that's part of the relationship between all these different systems. Because um, you know, again, we can talk about racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, ableism. Uh, but then, sort of undergirding all that stuff is capitalism, um, and Imperialism yes. and colonialism, right? Like power and money, money and power, power and money, money and power. Um, and so, you know, it makes sense that a lot of people uh, have this mentality, sort of the scarcity mentality. That gosh, if those people get things, it's going to pull from me. Um, but as you, you know, as you already, you already said uh, a few minutes ago that I completely agree with is there, there is more than enough available on this planet for everybody. You know, did you hear I don't know if you heard about this, but I want to say that I was reading an article a couple months ago where Elon Musk, you know, whatever time frame ago, you know, basically made this pledge that, yes, I'm going to put all this money in and I'm going to do all this work to, you know, end uh, poverty and, you know, all the sorts of different things. And there have already been studies that have shown, you know, that basically people like Elon Musk and those sorts of mega mega billionaires you know, they have enough money that they literally could invest to end a lot of this sort of financial disparity work and still be extremely filthy, filthy rich. Uh, but they just choose not to <laughs> just, you know, point blank, choose not to. Uh, and so these sorts of ways that we have this belief that there's not enough for everybody. Uh, but again, it's rooted in capitalism and colonialism and imperialism and people who need to have uh more than or be above people to sort of bolster their own sense of self or their own sense of control or power in, in the uh, in, in their sphere or in the world or whatever the case is. And it makes me think about uh, I'm going to keep I'm going to be broad about this because I do not want to give press to a particular individual that for you know problematic for various reasons. But there was like a, a, a big article about this organization that was doing a lot of this stuff to uh, Pay people really great wages and, you know, make sure everybody was getting a great salary, like you know, basically a minimum wage of this high number at their, their organization. Um, and then basically the other higher ups in the organization, the other you know, directors, et cetera, got really upset about that, even though their salaries were not being changed. And sort of like this idea of uh, if their director money is too close to, you know, those those lowly entry level, you know, beginner level staff. Uh, then suddenly they're not satisfied with the same salary that they were already getting. Uh, it's just sort of interesting the way that people's brains work around that. It's like, well, what? They they are not worthy. They're not as worthy as me because they're not this title, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, again, when there's enough for everybody, we don't have to live that way. And then when more people can wake up to that. Um, ideally and theoretically and hopefully that changes the game. in some of the conversations we're having on a broader scale.
1: Well, it's, I don't know which company you're talking about. Maybe you'll write it in the chat for me, but um there <laughs> yeah, was also a study that showed like, if you have say, if pe- there are people who are making a dollar, there are people who are making $2 and there are people who are making $3 and you give the person making $2 uh $2 that they can give to someone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not themselves. They can't keep it. Um, what uh-huh. they found in the study is that they will give it to the person above them because they don't want to give it to the person below them and allow them to go above them. And uh yeah. I I I, I don't know the psychology of that. It's really, really strange. I once went to the Keras School of Negotiation and uh, I felt that basically what they were teaching people is deception. Uh, they disagree, but as long as I operated from the model of deception, I was the top negotiator in the room over every CEO that was present. And then for our final negotiation, what he told us was that he wanted it to be a win-win negotiation where we negotiated so that the other person could win. Well, I took that to heart and everybody else, I guess that was the click for them to get the deception side. And I, you know, negotiated and we were using real money for that negotiation. I did a win-win negotiation and uh I was the worst negotiator in the room for that one negotiation. I did worse than anyone else in the room. Cause I really tried to make it win-win.
0: Uh. <laughs> it's just really interesting. Yeah, it's just so interesting how those things work. Um, uh, because that that ties into there there's uh I've seen on LinkedIn for at least the last several few years um these conversations about, you know. Hey, so and so is offering this course on how to negotiate your salary. Um, you know, hey, you know, black and brown people, you need to make sure you're negotiating your salary and you know, all these sorts of things that are putting the onus on people applying for, you know, for, for applicants for positions, um, as opposed to putting that energy and just saying, hey, organizations, like you know what your budget is for the role. You know what you're paying other people in the company that do the position, just pay fairly. Um But, you know, they don't because they want to save money and they want to cut those shortcuts. Um, And then oftentimes they don't think that people of certain uh, demographic identities are worthy of said salaries, even though they're going to be doing the same work. Uh, So, yes, it's very interesting the ways in which Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: No, no. And for a long time, that was really just women. Uh, One of my guests I had a few weeks ago was Joanna Isaacson, who wrote this book called Step for Daughters, which really talks about what she calls sort of radical Marxist feminism and how the the shift to this settler colonial capitalism had to create uh, a a different kind of slave class. And it became women who do all this uh, unpaid labor, emotional labor, labor in the home. Um, But they had to be uh, this sort of slave class to men who were doing this grunt work in the offices building the commodities that could be sold and the way you entice them to do this hey you got a slave at home who's going to cook and clean and provide all your emotional needs
0: yeah and uh gosh not to not to tangent too far but that absolutely feeds into um a lot of the sort of uh you know kind of alpha male kind of rising or whatever you want to call it like sort of these voices that talk about you know this is what women need to do and this is You know, men should be treated and like all that sort of trash, Uh, which doesn't work even for those people that grow really big platforms based off of those messages. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, you're 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 right that that all connects in together and it's all gross and harmful. Um, And it's harmful to everybody, you know, certainly, especially to women who are the recipients of that kind of energy. But it's harmful to to men, too, um, who think that that's what a sort of relationship should be as the sort of transactional thing, uh, which you know, just I think is kind of depressing to tell you the truth.
1: Now, when I the biggest thing I think that I came back from Africa with was that there's so much community there. And I came back home and I was like, I don't have community. I don't mm-hmm. have community. I mean, in Africa, the three-year-olds would be doing something over here and the nine-year-olds would be over there and the women would be at the river washing the clothes and the men might be sitting out you know, watching a game and there was just, you know, not much time for you to be alone. And people were so, so much community, which we don't have much of that anymore. Um, how could DEI help us with that? Oh,
0: that's great. Um, yeah, I think that I would say at maybe the, maybe, the, maybe the most basic level, uh, is when we start to be able to fully realize the humanity of people who might have stories different from our own uh, and to realize that there are, you know, truly experiences and rich wisdom and just even ways of connection that other folks from other groups might have that we don't personally possess. Uh, I think that, yeah, that definitely shifts a lot of the possibilities for our community. Uh, something that's been interesting that I've been just you know, a little bit of kind of uh, to a certain degree starting to experience is just even how the internet creates some new opportunities for connection, uh, where even if we physically might be in a you know a city or a town or work experience that just is not really feeding us or doesn't really have people that we would even want to be in community with, uh, they are just sort of these new platforms to be able to find like minded people, uh, and I've, I've like loved- what? I've loved ways that, well, I mean, even like social media, like even social media, I think that provides a pretty unique space for that, that I can speak for myself and that I have absolutely grown both in relationships and connection and just even in my own just sort of wisdom and knowledge base, specifically and uniquely because of connections to people through the internet. Um, and I'm thinking of a, a black people, there's like a black people religious group, um, I formerly was pretty religious, I'm not so much anymore, but a Black people religious group that specifically uh, centered the needs and the safety and the stories of FEMS and LGBTQ people. Um, and I was able to participate in that group as someone who was neither FEM nor LGBTQ. Um, but just being in that community space and being able to sort of share those thoughts and just hear stories from people um, and start to grow in my understanding about some of these stories that I haven't been a part of or experienced myself. Uh, it was just game changing for me and then just realizing, oh, my goodness, I didn't understand that this and this and this are unique pieces where we might all be black, but there are certain stories and experiences that I never have to deal with or experience or see. And then that helps me to just be a better community member, be a better friend, be a better partner, be a better advocate and accomplice. Um, and, you know, I can think about that from some of my more, more recent uh, connections through you know, Instagram, through, through TikTok and all those kinds of different things. So I don't think that that will ever nearly fully replace, uh, replace the physical connection pieces. But I think it at least can provide sort of a little bit of a stop gap um, as we figure out ways to get better uh, at being in person.
1: I guess I get a little suspicious inside of the online things because I have actually been sort of scammed inside that. You know what I mean? Mm. So I'm like, "Mm," you know, people can pretend to be anybody online, you know, that is true. So I'm like, I don't know that you who you say you are that you espouse, or you're just not trying to get, get me to say something or, you know what I mean? So I can be, uh, I I guess I, I engage online, but I'm always suspicious even of what I I read, you know, online. It's like, whoa, what, you know, I don't know. I don't know that I'm dealing, I don't know that this is written by anybody who's real. Uh, especially, I don't know if you've been using Chat GPT, but whoa, what you can do with Chat GPT now.
0: Whoa, whoa, whoa. Brian, yeah, that is, oh gosh. So absolutely, absolutely. Um, and that could be a whole other that could be a whole other podcast is just talking about AI. <laughs> but there's, you know, there's a lot of really exciting uses to that stuff, but a lot of absolutely terrifying. <laughs> There's uses for that stuff. Uh, and I think that that's going to be, you know, already is you know, with the chat GPT and some of these other tools, you know, this is this thing where people are getting all the cool artwork about their faces, which is, you know, like stealing from real artists, like already some of those conversations are starting to bubble. Um, and I have to imagine that these things are getting into regular, you know, Joe Schmo people's hands Um, But those things have been used by, you know, other folks for nefarious purposes that we weren't even aware of. Um, So, yeah, I'm not mad at that. Like, I I definitely understand that 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 suspicion. Um, I myself am very particular with how I engage people online, Um, very particular with my boundaries, with my connection points. Um, But, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what that future is going to look like. You know, not even necessarily five years, but, you know, maybe maybe next year, maybe next couple of years. Uh, you know how that stuff is going to be used to manipulate people.
1: Yeah, I've been watching a lot of the the British shows uh, have been doing a lot of stuff with deep fakes for some time and 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 focusing on the fact that they now have the capability to do real time deep fakes. Like an, if you can be watching a live interview with, um, you know, someone asking questions and they can they can deep fake it. And so it's like, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. Yeah, so I'm going to give you the last absolutely. words here. Yeah. I'm going to give you the last words. What would you like this audience, which is largely people who love the theater, uh, love Broadway, love actors and singers. And, you know, this is the Broadway podcast network. And I felt that your message is so important for everybody. And I do feel like as artists, we are the soul of our communities we um demonstrate possibilities that 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 infest people's imaginations and a, and grow into a, a new and better world. And so I felt that that was what you would bring to this audience and that's why I invited you. So I want to I want to give you the last words to uh to say what you think is important about your work and then let people know how they can engage with you beyond um beyond this, this conversation you and I are having. For sure.
0: For sure. I appreciate that. So I love the arts. Um, I, I practice the arts. I'm a portrait photographer. I, I sing a little bit. You know, I write a little bit. Um, I love the arts. And what I specifically love about the arts is the ways that, uh, gosh, this is another paraphrase, uh, but Cornel West said something about, uh, he's talking about music specifically. Uh, he said something like music is like the only medium that can get inside of you um, and sort of transform you from the inside out without your permission. Like you just hear it, you're just exposed to it. And I think that's the case for so many uh, so many of the arts um, and certainly, you know, theater, uh, being among those things and just the transformative ways that people can experience those shows and those stories. Um, and I think that when we think about DEI, even in the arts and even in theater and being able to experience in real time, the feeling and the story and the writing and the view and the perspective of people that maybe you don't necessarily have the opportunity to in regular life or in your neighborhood or community is powerful and transformational, potentially game-changing. And I love when I run into some media that tells a story that I just haven't been exposed to, or maybe even tells a story I've been exposed to, but captures it from a different cultural or identity lens that I just haven't seen before. Um, So I think that even there, there's such uh, an opportunity to be enriched as well as to support uh, by actively and intentionally hearing new stories that one might not typically or traditionally uh, be aware of or be exposed to. And so uh, and then by that, by that sort of infusion into ourselves, that then gives us more tools to better pour into people whose voices and stories typically are ignored or not heard. Um, And if we can, you know, even use our own sense of, you know, our own sense of awareness of our own story and wishing ways that people would know more about us uh, to be able to understand that, yeah, that's how that is for so many different groups of people. I think that's really powerful. And so, you know, I hope that as more voices are given platforms and are making movies and are in Broadway and making, you know, all these different places of art, uh, that people take that to heart and just have some level of intentionality with choosing to listen to folks or be in spaces that maybe they normally wouldn't have or might even feel uncomfortable or a little scary, whatever the case is. Uh, So, yeah, I love that. I love that. And I love that uh, that there's that opportunity for your audience. And so i pretty regularly am sharing stuff on social media. I'm especially active on Instagram and TikTok at racial equity insights. um, And I also serve organizations and businesses. um, And I have e-courses that are really good for individual people as well. And people can check out everything that I do on my website, www.RacialEquityInsights.com.
1: Tony, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you. Um, I hope I'm going to visit Tanzania maybe in December. And if you're there, I'd love to to meet you in person. Um, you know, I think it's the possibility of building relationship and community. Um, it's just the only thing that matters in this world, and I was actually reading an article yesterday that said that is the key to happiness and and that's also that's the fantastic. thing I saw in in Africa is that these people didn't have an iota of what I have in terms of material resources, but I saw community, I saw happiness, I saw people with all needs met, and it was very humbling
0: for me, yeah, I agree, I agree I've experienced that as well, um and it's definitely sort of a a big challenge to sort of our uh, maybe unrealized notions about what, what's really valuable. Um, and yes, if you come to Tanzania, please, please contact me. That would be wonderful. I, I would love to meet you in person, um, and especially to be able to do so on the continent itself. That would be fantastic.
1: Right, I know, it would be so awesome. Um, so thank you so much. And um, blessings to you and your family and your four sons keeping them safe. I understand how important that is. Um, And I wish them safety and you are listening to Tanya Pinkins. You can't say that on the Broadway podcast network. Thanks for listening to you. Can't say that the show where you can. I'm Tanya Pinkins and you can't say That is part of the Broadway podcast network produced by Dori Berenstein and Alan Seals with music by Kat Dale. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast highly wherever you stream. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Tanya Pinkins.